Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you calling it? <laughs> And welcome to the Sustaining Open Source Design podcast. That's the SOS podcast. This is the podcast where we get together with a group of friends, hosts, and a guest, and we talk about everything to do with design and open source and the intersections between the two. Today, we have on the host panel, Georgia Bullen. Hi. Memo Esparza. Hey, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. And myself, Errol Fox. We've got a very cool guest today. Their name is Justin Shearer. Justin has been designing software as a job for a decade or so now. He has done so for multinational banks, national marketing campaigns, and small humanitarian not-for-profits. As a design team of one on big teams surrounded by whiteboards, interdisciplinary colleagues, and lots of ping pong tables. And also from a home office with asynchronous distributed teams in dozens of time zones on every inhabited continent. Lately, he's been working on tech for crisis response and the humanitarian sector, as well as developer tools for fintech products. Where are you working right now, Justin? And say hello to the people listening. Thanks so much for the lovely introduction. Yeah, right now I'm working on personal finance app called Stacks. So that's a trans-institutional personal finance app, mostly focused on sub-Saharan Africa right now, but we're hoping to expand it to other parts of the world. It's an offline first thing, so you don't need any data to do your sort of basic banking functions. I also just wanted to call out that I'm calling in from Calgary, which is in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. And just in the spirit of reconciliation, I just want to acknowledge that I'm based in the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is the Siksika, the Kainai, the Bakani First Nations, as well as the Tsutina and the Stony Nakoda Nations, and the Métis Nation of Region 3. Thank you for that, Justin. <laughs> for folks who aren't familiar with that practice, that was a land acknowledgement, which is a great practice to do. So thank you for bringing that to the show. I've heard of Stacks a little bit, mostly because I've seen messages from you in our interactions on the internet. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. How is the team structured? Is the project open source? Like, can you tell us a little bit more about the project and the organization and your current work environment? Yeah, no problem. So the organization is called Hover Developer Services. That's the sort of parent company. And Stacks is the product. Stacks is pretty interesting. It's a relatively new thing. It's growing super fast right now, which is kind of hectic and, and pretty scary, frankly. But, you know, it's a very exciting time. Hover was originally a Android developer tools platform. So our CTO, David, developed this way to automate USSD transactions in the background of a regular smartphone app. So for folks out there who aren't familiar with USSD, this is unstructured supplementary service data. And these are basically the rails that the majority of financial transactions go over in, in most of the global South. USSD is interesting because it's both legacy infrastructure, but it's also very accessible. Right? So you don't need any mobile data to access it. You don't need to download big smartphone apps to hog up all the uh, room on your phones. So Hover Developer Services and the SDK that we built was a way for any developer working in an area that has USSD as like a common rails for everyday transactions 
to build apps for the world around them, basically. That was the original play. But we realized relatively shortly that it was really difficult to... like Lots of people were building apps, but not very many people were able to build the sort of infrastructure of a company around those products, right? There's still a handful of Hover SDK products out there in the world. But we realized as a company, in order to really take advantage of this technology, we needed to create the app that we always hoped that our users would create, essentially. And that's Stacks. So the way Stacks works, in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, it's really common for people to have lots of different financial institutions. So like we have users with five, six, seven different bank accounts or accounts with different mobile money providers. And like normally, that would create a huge issue, right? So each one of those things needs data. Each one of those apps um, requires more space on your phone. Oftentimes, the devices are like not crazy. You know, you like, might not have the highest spec Android phone. And so you want to conserve the space that you're using. And so Stacks lets you do all of your basic financial transactions in one app that's under 10 megabytes without using data. So that's the sort of core value proposition of it. Right now, we're live in, I think, about 15 countries. And we've onboarded like 30 plus banks and mobile money services. So things are growing really quickly. It's really exciting. Your second question was about the team structure. So we're a relatively small team. We're hovering around 10 right now. We've got folks in Nairobi, in Kenya. We've got a few folks in Nigeria, folks in the UK, a handful of folks in the US sort of scattered across US. And then I'm the lone Canadian on the team. Everyone's working remotely, relatively asynchronous. So we, we tend to all overlap sort of the very beginning of my day in terms of time zones. And that's when we do our sort of like, you know, any all team meetings, stand-ups, that kind of thing. Great. It sounds really uh, exciting what you do, Justin. Congratulations by the great work. Could you tell us, like, you're head of design, right, of, of Stacks. I always love to make this question because we, like from a creative point of view, we come from different backgrounds and origins. So I would really like to know yours. Like, how did you started to do creative work either from a professional education or out out from it, because that's also really important to know, like how's your pathway has been so far to where you are right now. Nice. Yeah. The origin story. Okay. So my original, I guess, educational background is in the humanities. So I have an undergraduate degree in German studies and history, ironically. I thought I was going to be a historian for a really long time until I realized that that just wasn't a really good fit for me. After I was finished that, so at the end of my undergrad degree, I was studying a lot of architecture and sort of like art theory and cultural studies, that kind of thing. And I started realizing all the different ways that architecture and things like building monuments in post-war countries and like these kinds of things were like really intentional and like had these massive public debates around them. And there was this sort of like fascinating practice involved in it. And that I think was my first real exposure to like interesting design problems. And then I moved to Germany for a little while. I was living in Europe. And then it's kind of funny. I don't think I've ever told this story before, but when I moved back to Canada after when my visa ran out in Germany, basically, I put into Craigslist, this is dating it a little bit, German and design in the job boards. And that's how I got my first design job. So there's a company in Toronto at the time, who was building a football app, soccer app for uh, Bundesliga fans. And they needed someone who spoke German and who was also into design. And luckily for me at the time, there weren't a lot of people in Toronto who had that particular skill set. So, so yeah, that's how I got my guess, I guess my first step uh, foot in the door. That was just a part-time thing, but I went on to study 
they call it knowledge media design at the time, but now it's called, they just call the program UX design at the University of Toronto. I did my master's degree there. It was an interesting education. It was a lot of architecture and urban design, a lot of just like learning how people navigate in the world. And I was able to sort of apply that to digital things later on. After school, I got my first sort of like entry-level job at a marketing agency in Toronto called McCann. That's when I started working on big clients for the first time, you know, like big auto manufacturers, things like MasterCard, big banks. And I moved away from the agency life. I don't know if there, if any of you folks have ever worked agency side before, but it can be a bit of a grind. And this was like really early in sort of like the UX design trajectory, right? So this is when we were still called like experience architects or things like that. Like no one really knew what to call us. No one really knew like what we did really. They're like, they make experience maps. I don't know what that is, but our clients pay a lot of money for it. So let's, you know, get this guy in the room. That kind of vibe. This is when like responsive design was like a new sexy thing. Like if you remember that, you know? So anyways, I'm now thoroughly dated myself. That's great. So I decided to move sort of in-house somewhere. And I've been in-house ever since. The next job after that, I basically spent three years redesigning the mobile apps at a big bank in Canada called Scotiabank. So it was interesting, you know, end-to-end product experience for the first time, millions of users. Also my first exposure to like the interior, the sort of like nasty guts of fintech and how that works. Worked there for a little while. And then it was interesting. So my, my partner, Mel, was in nursing school at the time. And she got an opportunity to work at a remote nursing station in the Northwest Territories in Canada in a uh, First Nations community called Bechico. And we were both kind of over Toronto at the time. I was kind of had done what I'd come to do at the bank. So we made the decision to go fully remote. This is probably like five, six years ago now. So I went fully remote. We moved to the north to a town of, I think, like 2,000 people. And yeah, so that's where I started working for Ushahidi. They are, you know, great not-for-profit technology company. They work on open source tools for humanitarian sector and crisis response, as well as loads of other interesting projects. This is where I met Errol for the first time. And I worked at Ushahidi for a little while until Jess, who was one of the co-founders at Hover, also a colleague of ours at Ushahidi, told me about what they were doing at Hover and, and I made the switch from there. So that's the sort of like more than an origin story. Sorry, that was more of like a resume read off, but you, you get the idea. It's really nice to see almost kind of, to some extent, how you've circled back into the fintech area from that, those experiences that you had at the, sorry, the Nova Scotia Bank, wasn't it? Scotia Bank, yeah. yeah. Scotia Bank, sorry. Yeah. My knowledge of Canadian geography there not being particularly accurate. What I really wanted to ask is actually circling back on some of what Georgia was saying and actually through some of your experiences. I'm really curious to know, you talked about the makeup of Stacks and Hover, but I would really love for you to talk more in detail about the design side of like how maybe the design team is made up and what kind of activities and roles that they do and how open source plays into that. A great question. It's very apropos. This is something that I'm working on quite a bit right now. It's a team of 10, right? So everyone does design, everyone does UX on some level. That's like a sort of personal philosophy of mine. You know, like great ideas or insights for UX come from developers, they come from the CEO, they come from interns, they come from everybody. So I really consider myself more as a like facilitator, sort of designer as facilitator. I'm also in this interesting and like somewhat complicated situation where I'm sitting in a city, like a mega city or like a pretty prosperous city in one of the most prosperous nations of the earth with most of my users in sort of less fortunate places. And so it creates what I can only 
what I usually describe as a neo-colonial vibe, which I work really hard to sort of work against. And basically working against it is the only way that I can sort of ethically do my job. And so I really lean hard on research insight and like collaborative work with both my colleagues, many of whom are based in Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere, but also our users. So we're a team of 10. We have a full-time researcher on our team. Her name's Wango. She's fantastic. The design team sort of officially is just the two of us. And then we also have an advisor whose name is Tosh. He works at IDEO full-time in Nairobi and he's fantastic. And he's sort of like an outside advisor on the design team. And we're just hiring. We're in the middle of hiring a new visual designer who's going to be doing a lot of our marketing things. Because one of the parts of being in a consumer-facing app after doing developer tools for a long time is you need to market stuff. It's very unfortunate. <laughs> I'm getting used to it anyways. I would love to hear a little bit more, maybe going into sort of almost like a day-to-day, because I think our listeners or like the kinds of people that we would want to be listening to this are people that are either on the design side of things or the open source side of things and are really interested in how these two come together. And I think that it's actually kind of unusual to hear almost like a day-to-day of what a design team working within open source can do on those kinds of tools. So if you wouldn't mind kind of a rough sort of outline of what you do there. Okay. So I'll tell you how things are working right now and I'll tell you how I want them to work. And I guess like the next six months or so, this is also a bit of an exclusive. So I haven't really talked about this in public yet. So the way things typically work, we're in a position in the product where we're trying to make lots of incremental improvements to do things like improve retention and make sure that, you know, people onboard smoothly and their transactions are good and like these kinds of things, right? Kind of basic fintech things. One thing I forgot to mention is that, so Stacks, the app is open source. So you can go, you can fork it on GitHub, all that's good. But the Hover SDK, which is like our backend that like kind of is, I guess, like the secret sauce and that, that sort of core technology that I was talking about earlier, that is not open source. And we're also a venture-backed company. We're not a not-for-profit. We're a startup. And so that lets us do a couple things. So the design right now, we're pretty open with it. The way it works is... Typically, we'll find something in our analytics that seems weird or not ideal. I think of analytics as almost like the truffle pig in the design process. We've got enough people in there. It will tell us generally there's something funky going on over here. And then typically Wongo or Jess or I, mostly Wongo, will then formulate like a proper research question around that weird thing that we found and recruit people, do remote, remote interviews with them and, you know, do research studies. We do lots of different types of research studies. And we then take the sort of insights to that and that feeds into the design process. Uh, And the way that works is typically I'll take it and I'll start with sketches, lots of pencil and paper in my process. Then I'll move into Adobe XD and I use Adobe XD mostly because it's got the best developer handoff and most well-integrated prototyping experience of all of the UX design softwares. And I've tried them all. It's also not open source, but it's free. So it's interesting. So, and then, you know, we do the design, multiple revisions, prototypes that we test again with users if need be. And then I hand that off to the developer team and then sort of, you know, shepherd that through the process of getting out into the world. So that's how things work now. The way I'd love things to work in the future is I really want to create a way... So again, Stack is an open source product. Open source is sort of... It's a really big part of a lot of the founders' backgrounds. And a lot of the folks in the company have worked in open source before, myself included. And so I'd love to be able to source a lot of the sort of 
lower level. I, I think of like small D and big D design. So like not the kind of design that requires like huge, broad insights and like massive number of hours of research and talking to users, but the kinds of things that come maybe like one step below that, where it's like, here's a puzzle, here's a problem to solve. Here's our sort of design system. Now, like kind of see what you can do. I'd love to have that come from an open source community primarily. And there's sort of a little bit of a precedent for this in Stack. So one of the things that we do as a product is in order to provide all of these services to all these different financial institutions and mobile money networks all over the world, we have to actually like crowdsource people showing us what those menus look like, essentially. Like there's all of these different wild, wacky menu trees. So you like dial a number in your phone and then you go to however you get to the send money flow for say, I don't know, MTN Nigeria or whatever it is. And there's no good way for us to get that information because you need a SIM card in market in order to do it. And so we have compensated crowdsourcing as the way that we do it. If you go into the app, there's a button that says get paid to map money flows or the USSD flows. You hit that and there's a big like list of essentially what are like open source bounties that people can then fulfill. And you know, we get hundreds of those a week. And it's pretty crazy on a small team, just like the administrative overhead and like getting all those people paid, making sure those transactions are good transactions, all those kinds of things is, is a huge challenge for us, but definitely worth it. And the goal, I say it's compensated crowdsourcing because we haven't actually re-released those menus back to the public yet because it takes a lot of work and we just haven't prioritized it yet, but that's the goal. So ideally it'll be compensated open source contributions eventually. I'm curious about that a bit as well. And so your goal would be to have compensated design contributions is what I'm hearing you say. That's cool. That's um, right. This is something that I know we've been talking about a lot internally at Simplest here. We sort of always try to prioritize being able to pay participants and building that into project budgets for whenever we're doing user research. But it's actually one of the places where I think a lot of teams struggle, like making the case for that or like how to do that equitably or to the point you brought up, honestly, sometimes the biggest barrier is operationally <laughs> how to handle it. Yeah. How are you guys doing that right now? Are you doing it through your app itself? Are you, yeah, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about that. That method actually might be really useful for other folks to learn from because, yeah, the operations tends to be the biggest challenge. So, right now, Jess, our uh, head of product, and Ben, our CEO, are spending hours and hours figuring out how to do international remittances to get people paid for money mapper submissions. We are doing an experiment right now, which is a research study with like 50 to 70 people. It's a bit of a bigger study for us. And we're going to pay all of them in crypto. So that's one thing where as part of our participant screener, we said, you know, what coin do you want to get paid in? What's your wallet address? And it's amazing. You know, most people, Bitcoin, Ethereum, like USD coin, some kind of stable coin, like crypto adoption in sub-Saharan Africa, especially in places like Nigeria is sort of like orders of magnitude higher than other parts of the world. So that actually helps us a lot with, well, it remains to be seen, but I think it's going to help us a lot with the sort of operational side of things. That'll help a lot. Like there was a period of time last year where it was actually impossible to send money from an American bank account to Nigeria because of like chicanery with the central banks and policies that they had made. So that's the operational part of it. In terms of getting buy-in within the organization, this kind of thing is hundred percent our values and like everyone, like it's really not hard at all. Like when I bring stuff like this up, people are like, yes, we need to do that. Absolutely. Because, you know, we have a small design team and we are very much limited in terms of, you know, just the amount of time I have to work on things. 
yeah, it's never really been a hard sell for me, to be honest with you. That being said, we haven't done it yet. So, you know, I'm sure there'll be roadblocks uh, along the way, but I doubt those roadblocks will come from like a lack of willingness to do it internally. When it comes to the ethics of it, I've thought about this quite a bit, which is, okay, so there's two things, right? That I think like kind of plague design and open source overall. One, designers hate doing spec work. They hate working for free. Developers who were open, like, you know, I'm sure you, you, you folks talk about this on this podcast all the time. Developers are used to open source. They're used to doing stuff for free. That's part of their education for the most part. And that's usually how they're sort of onboarded into the open source process. Designers don't do free work. They're taught in school not to do free work if they even have any schooling, which is another whole part of it, which is like, you know, informal education is a huge part of the design education process in the markets where Stacks is used. And so I don't want those folks to have to work for free because they shouldn't and their contributions are valid. And we also, you know, venture back startup, we can pay them. And if that work was being done by an in-house person, they'd be getting paid. So we should pay them. But these are like relatively small design tasks, the way that I've sort of conceptualized it. And so like, at what point are we just fiber? You know, like, is that good? Is that bad? Like, how is that? If you're a designer and you're getting paid to do work, especially if you're early in your career, this is now a portfolio piece that's in production. That's huge, right? But it's also not, you know, a stable job of benefits because you now we can't offer that to hundreds of open source contributors, unfortunately. So yeah, there, it's definitely not like ethically completely free and clear. And we're trying to figure out this kind of stuff right now. Yeah, we've been thinking about it from the perspective of if we tried to act as a hub for this, but then yeah, at what point are you just a different version of Fiverr, right? Or like how many of us are trying to solve the same problems that some of those platforms are solving? That there is actually instead of this tension point between the value of labor and the platforms that like make that easy to undervalue the labor and like what is the gray space there? I think is a really good point. <laughs> I was curious to, if you wanted to talk about also challenges you've run into at other organizations. It sounds like one of the things that you're saying is that a key factor here is actually just the values of the organization and seeing that that's what you all should be doing for sustaining that input, for valuing people's time from a like equity perspective, like, yeah, and ethics perspective. <laughs> what about at other places you've worked, like nonprofits or some of the big companies you've worked at or agencies? Did you try at those places? Did it come up at all? Or what sort of challenges did you run into? There are a couple of things there. So I think the biggest problem that I've had in actually implementing open source design contributions is like not really having a robust sense of like what the source of design actually means. Whereas like in a, if, if it's code, right? Like a developer can pull something from GitHub and everything they need to work on the project is contained in the code, more or less. You know, it's like a code and read this forum and you're probably fine. Our research is a massive part of the source that goes into our designs. It's not just like download XD and here's our UI patterns. It's like all of the thought that's gone into what's already there, as well as what we know about our users these kinds of things, right? And so like open sourcing that is like difficult, has been difficult for me so far in like this role as well as previous ones. I think contributing the source back into the community is the thing that makes this not Fiverr. So for example, like if you solicit an open source contribution from somebody and they may say do a new flow in your sort of like one of your core flows and they change a few input fields and they, you know, do a small amount of design, that then gets like not only the designs themselves and the app, but also the reasons for those designs and the pull requests, which is essentially design critique, those then get transferred back into the community. And so you're, you have a transfer of knowledge, you have a transfer of value there as well. Whereas with Fiverr, that all stays in the organization and it's very like sort of transactional. That might just be like a difference in flavor instead of like a di or difference in kind, but I feel like that's different. 
in terms of like different organizations. I mean, I used to work at a major bank. You couldn't even talk to a user without six NDAs and like four levels of approval from like 16 VPs whose titles you can't even pronounce. Like it's out of control. Like we did almost all of our user testing with bank employees, which is crazy if you think about it. Like the amount of bias that put into our usability testing is just kind of mind boggling. It was like a really big deal when the design group that I worked at in the bank was able to go out and actually talk to... So we had a big accessibility problem and we went out and we talked to some folks with like different um, disabilities and different accessibility needs. And just doing that was a huge deal. Mind you, this was like five, six years ago. So I'm sure things, I hope, I want to be optimistic and give them the benefit of the doubt and say things are a lot better now than they were back then. But at the time, they were just starting to get into opening up a tiny bit. And then most of the things that get out of those kinds of organizations and that the agency was the same are things that are essentially just promotional. So like, you know, you, we publish this report with the one nonprofit client that we have so that everyone will think we're good people or because all of your corporate work is just like strangled by NDAs and like, yeah, marketing is also different than product design though. So like I could see value to that in a way. You said that your team right now in Sang has uh, two people yourself and uh, another one that's focused 100% on research. That's right. I'm really interested in how design research plays its role on the whole process that you, you guys set up on Stacks. And that's the appendix of that question. How is that design research work is open source also for yourselves? The short answer is that it's not open source right now. And we want it to be. I think, again, in order to have open source design contributions, we need to have open source research. And this is one of the things that I've been struggling with a little bit. There's issues around privacy and PII, but also, you know, it just takes a lot more work to get something, like to get a research report, which is like a few bullet points and like maybe, you know, six, 700 words of like fairly informal prose in Notion ready for public consumption. There's like a whole extra layer of editing and like considering different, different audiences. So yeah, we don't want to show the private, like personally identifiable information of our research participants to anybody who wants to contribute. That's unethical research. We don't want to do that. So that's been a struggle. We're going to figure it out. It's just, we had, you know, things have been growing really fast. Stacks came out of alpha, I think in March and it's now August. And we have, you know, like many tens of thousands of users and it's like pretty crazy. So, you know, these things are on the backlog, but they're, you know, and they're prioritized, but we can only do one thing at a time. In terms of the research, how that works, basically when we had enough funding to hire a new person into the design team, I wanted to make sure that it was a researcher, both from a personal, like that's just sort of my design philosophy. I'm very much like an insight first designer and not a I like locked myself away in a garret and had a brilliant idea and look how brilliant I am. Like, I don't have that sort of like, I didn't go to art school, right? That's what I assume art school is. Maybe some of my else could correct me. But <laughs> so my focus has always been like, get the research, get the insight. And that's the thing that's going to sell your design at the end of the day. And so when we were still doing the developer tools product, we did a big design study in Accra and Nairobi where we like the whole team went out, well, like six, seven people at the time. We went to all the like local developer hubs. We went to some GDG, some Google developer group events. We met and talked to a bunch of people. We went to their homes, their home offices. You know, we did like field research, like proper field research. And we would do those like two, three times a year. At Ushahidi, that was also pretty common, like two, three times a year. We would make sure we were going to a place where our users live to like learn as much as we can about the most important questions that we had at the time. Obviously, the pandemic's made that impossible. 
And having Wongo in Nairobi has been like absolutely critical. I always make the joke, like all the good ideas at Stacks come from research and Wongo does most of that research. So she ends up generating more than her fair share of great ideas. I would say ideas come from everywhere on the team, but you know, Wongo is responsible for a lot of it. Yeah. Her role is just so essential. It sounds like we need to get Wongo on the podcast as well to talk about specifically research and what they do with Hover and Stacks. I'd love to invite them to have conversation. Before we wrap up, I just really wanted to, I was thinking about something when you were talking about the way that you do research where you are at Hover and Stacks. And it actually follows on from what you've just said, like about the importance of how, for lack of a better term, innovation comes from insight, from research within an open source organization, within an open source tool, sorry, that you work on in Hover. And I think the the thing that I was thinking of earlier on was this thing within open source that is reasonably accepted is that a lot of open source seems to be developers scratching their own itches and that it's actually quite new. And I know that we're talking about it because it's familiar to us like a lot, but there's likely a lot of people from the open source software side of things listening to this that are more used to the term of developers scratching their own itches and insights coming from very almost for, I don't want to be kind of rude and assume and saying this rude, but the saying this word, but kind of a closed community of just the developers that are scratching their own itch essentially. And I think I just really want to give you the opportunity to just kind of say some of the things that you possibly can say that are critical sort of breakthroughs that have come from the insights of research and how important it should be focused on. You are not your users. I don't care how similar your users are to you. You are not your users. When you make a thing, you give up any right to have an opinion about that thing, really, at the end of the day. Unless it's another person who's not on the team who has this thing in their hands and is using it and like it's them, then then that's another story. But if you're building a tool or a service, you don't know best. Full stop. That's just human-centered design 101 stuff. Like, And I know the folks on this call, you don't need to say that, but that's not part of the culture of software development a lot of times, right? Like they don't get as much trained, like, you know, they're focused on other stuff most of the time, I feel like. And like, I feel like we should maybe have some developers on here to defend themselves. But yeah, if you think that a closed community of like 10 core maintainers of an open source product is enough to like really develop insight and innovation about that product, then you're just frankly wrong. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I know it's hard to get insight from users. It's hard to do research. This is another thing where it's like, you know, compliments are bad data. Qualitative research is a skill that people need to do. Designers tend to do it really badly. And like the ethical sort of bar and like the amount of rigor that most designers, like UX designers are doing in their usability work is like, frankly, appalling, myself included, like for earlier in my career. So, you know, it's incumbent upon you. If people, if like real people out in the world are using your thing, then you need to like educate yourself in the tools and methods to learn from people who are actually using it. So that's a core belief of mine. You could hear I'm pretty passionate about it. I think so much suffering is created by bad tools because people think they know better than the users or they don't even bother to ask them. So yeah, let's not do that anymore. I was like, just to jump on that, I think one of the fine differences there that is, is sort of embedded in what you're saying, but just to name it, is thinking of any of these things as product. Yours very clearly is because it's an app that's out in the world with users. That's a product the way we normally think about it as like an app or a website or something that is an output. And I think frequently there's this gap, especially in the open source community of 
not realizing that the tools you're publishing or the code you're publishing is a product. Your users might not be people doing banking transactions, might be other developers, it might be designers, it might be like any number of things for any of the things that we make that people use. But it is about this shift to thinking about those as products with an audience and that audience having needs. You know, in fairness to a lot of open source developers, they didn't necessarily go to, <laughs> they didn't necessarily get formal training the same way you're talking about having not gone to art school, right? Like, or whatever is the, whatever is the thing that we hold up, right? Of, of that, for that educational component. A lot of folks are self-taught in that context as well. So, but something we see a lot with projects we work with is it, it's really this shift about recognizing that the thing you're making is a product and that people use it <laughs> and they have needs and whether or not you are making something for that audience as a product, or if you are, if you are just making it for you and it happens to have people who use it. And if you want to acknowledge that, right, like that's a, a shift that folks kind of need to make or make a choice around. Yeah. I mean, I think there's maybe a narrative that often gets used in technology and, you know, digital products in general, maybe digital services is that the people built the thing that they wanted to see in the world. And so they thought of their own needs first when they were first building it. The second that more than just you and your buddies are using it though, that you got to consider other people and you got to start asking them directly. And you got to make sure that the people you're asking are representative of the people who are actually going to be using it at the end of the day. It's yeah, it's an, super important. I think that's like actually the source of open source design, really. Like it's not the design files, it's the like knowledge and insight and those things that go around the design without which you're essentially just copying other people on Dribble at the end of the day. You know, like, let's be real. <laughs> okay, we've had a fantastic conversation. We could probably talk for several more hours on each of these individual topics, but I'd like to, at this point, say thank you so much to Justin for being here and offering up the knowledge and insight and the accessibleness of how any open source organization, any open source tool could do this and could achieve this. So thank you, Justin. You're very welcome. This is an absolute pleasure. It was great to meet you all. I'm going to round us off with our spotlight. So this is just a section of the podcast where we talk about a cool project that is open source or maybe open source adjacent that we're into. So not necessarily about what we've just been talking about, but something open source and we're into it. So I'm going to ask Memo to spotlight their project first. On my spotlight for today, I have this simple project. It's a library of illustrations of uh, humans. It's called Humans with a triple A. And uh, it may seem at first sight like kind of banal, but truly it isn't, especially when you're building like different stuff all the time focused on humans. You surely need ways to build a story and, and wrap a story around you know what what you're working with and usually these graphical hints are really handful so yeah that's my spotlight for today it's it's uh, totally open source and it's done by a, a great designer i admire pablo stanley so give encouraged to uh, look for his job great so georgia what is your spotlight for this episode I was going to share a project that we recently published. I'm not sure that the full design work has been launched in the product yet, but the open source project is called Fish Detect, supported by Amnesty International, and it's a tool for flagging phishing emails. And we recently helped them with a bunch of usability and design work and shared some about 
that on our blog. So I just dropped in the, the link to our blog of the sort of rebrand of the project, uh, which is pretty exciting to see. So there's some useful open design assets with that. <laughs> and the project itself is really amazing. So I'd recommend that people check that out and you know maybe use it to help detect phishing emails in your email if you want. Awesome. So no longer is, does it just go off into the ether of Microsoft or Google to exactly. do what they will with the phishing report? So my spotlight for this episode is something that I found through the MozFest Wrangler channel, the I am participating MozFest Wrangling for 2022, this year, preparation for 2022. And it's a project from MozFest 2018 called Zen Shana, which is people can submit stories to this kind of created world called Zen Shana. And it's about whether or not the world could be fully decentralized. And it's got sort of like an Alice in Wonderland theme to it. There's some beautiful artwork that's been created and you can read all about like the parallel dimension where people self-organize into groups and it's like fully decentralized world. It's a beautiful project that I found through MozFest. To finish us off with their spotlight, Justin, what is your spotlight for this episode? My obsession for some time right now has been actually like building modular synthesizers. So I'm an electronic musician in addition to everything else that I'm I'm working on. There is a lot, like a big, very active, beautiful open source hardware and software community in the sort of like Euro rack format synthesizer world. My favorite of which is uh, this thing called Music Thing Modular, which is done by a guy named Tom Whitwell based in London in Herne Hill in the UK. He's got tons of really amazing open source modules. I've He actually, I used to mess around with open source hardware back in grad school. He actually inspired me to pick up my soldering iron again after over a decade of not using it. And I have like a nice little distortion module now in my Eurorack setup. So it's great. Yeah, fantastic stuff going on in the Eurorack land for open source. And with the final spotlight, I'd again like to thank everyone on the hosting panel. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. This, This is great. And see you next time, everyone.